Welcome to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. The first volume, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, is available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. In this, their last episode together, John and Mark consider what makes a story a fully satisfying guide for human life, and then Mark retells the full Christian story. Mark, it is great to be back. And I was remembering that I have an uncanny ability to get lost in the little frustrations of daily life and lose the big picture. And yet, even as I say that, I realize I should be saying to you the big story. What, what's the big story for us in light of all of our discussion of pain? You've made a crucial distinction there, John. By speaking, by speaking of the big story instead of the big picture, we're told in Scripture that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we're told that we walk by faith, not by sight. Picture suggests sight. Story suggests hearing. I think that our saying a little bit about stories may be really important here in order for our listeners to understand how the Christian story gives us a hope that I don't think can be found in any other story of any other religion in the same way and to the same degree. The Christian story is, I would want to say, a proper story. It's a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end is a satisfying end. It's an end where, when we hear it, our hearts can rest. We instinctively want the persons whom we love not to perish. That's why people, when they are mourning someone who has just died, talk as if that person still exists somewhere. We know that persons are valuable in such a way that if persons just disappear at physical death, that's a tragedy. That's a story without a proper ending. And in fact, what Christianity does is it offers a proper ending. By means of our Lord's resurrection, the first disciples of Jesus, the apostles, came to realize that the story did not end with the tragedy of his death on the cross. As long as they thought that, they were huddled in an upper room. They were uh, in despair about the fact that they thought that he was the Messiah who was to come. But it seemed that he wasn't because he had died. 
It was only as our Lord appeared to them in his resurrection appearances that suddenly they had a message and a story that, in fact, could turn the world upside down. And ever after that, they were brave in telling that story, even if people laughed at it, even if people couldn't believe in a resurrection. They were brave in telling that story. They knew it was true. And ultimately, that story covered the face of the world. Mark, you're being a professor on me. I hate to tell you, you're being awfully didactic. You're telling me about the story, that it has parts to it, that it was used different places. But I'm just a normal guy walking in this world like a bunch of other people have been trying to figure out how to get through life. Tell me the story. The story begins with God out of his goodness creating the world and making it inhabitable for human beings who were to be his images on the earth. The story progresses through the fact that God wanted them to be in full fellowship and communion with him. And in order for that to be possible, he had to give them a command that they had to agree to in order for it to be clear that they were giving themselves wholly to him. And so in the second chapter of Genesis, after God has created the man, he tells the man that of all the trees in the garden he may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil he must not eat, for the day therein he eats he will die. Chapter 3 tells us that rather than trusting God, our first parents trusted the serpent and themselves, ate from that tree, and they fell into sin and sickness and ultimately death. So the beginning of the story is that we're talking about the fact that the creator God of the universe and of creatures wants to be in relationship with them, and it goes wrong from the get-go, right? Yes, yes, okay, exactly. Okay, keep going. Then what happens? It's already gone wrong. Adam and Eve, they messed up, and God's like, this isn't going to work. I'm making the rules. You're not. So what happened was that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve, hearing him walking, hid themselves because of their shame and their fear of him. And he called out to Adam and he said, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, I'm here among the trees. And God wanted to know why. And Adam made it clear that it was because they had broken God's command. At which point God uh, speaks to the serpent and then to the woman and then to the man about the penalties for their having broken the commandment that he had given them. But even as he speaks to them about the penalties, the pain that the woman will suffer in childbirth, the fact that the man is going to have to scratch a living from the ground and it will be hard, even in the midst of that, in fact, before he says those things, he offers what's known as the protevangelium, which is the fact that there will be a son who will come from the lineage of Adam and Eve. 
and that the serpent will strike at his heel, but he, in fact, will crush the serpent's head. It's the proto-evangelium. It's the beginning of the gospel, the first glimmer of what God was going to do in Christ. It's the beginning of the third part of the Christian story. If the first two parts are creation and rebellion, this is the first glimmer of redemption. And so we read this story plays itself out throughout the Old Testament where we see this dynamic of God still lovingly pursuing his people, wanting a good relationship, the people in a variety of ways rebelling, God in a variety of ways giving people ways to get back on track. We get to the the New Testament, and something changes a little bit, doesn't it? Tell me a little more what you're thinking of there, John. Well, it changes in the sense that when Jesus enters the scene, we have God's pursuit that we've already seen. The story is played out over and over again. But with Jesus, it takes a little bit different turn as we now have God in human flesh expressing what we've already learned or should have learned through many, many books and uh, through what you've already told us so far. Uh, But it becomes uh, a little bit more clear, at least it should. Yes, God becomes incarnate in Jesus. And Jesus takes up a life where he is going to be the last Adam, where he is going to be obedient to his father in the way that God had asked Adam and Eve to be obedient to him. He will be obedient even unto death. But the result of that obedience will be that he will take our sins upon himself, that they will be punished, that God's wrath will be poured out on Jesus, even on the cross, in such a way that God's wrath will cover our sins. And because of that vicarious atonement, God could raise Jesus and did raise Jesus from the dead in order to have Jesus' resurrection be the sign of the fact that God is going to set everything right for those who put their faith in him. And so the big story ends in a marvelous way. Tell us about that. It ends in a consummation when our Lord will come back again. And at his second coming, in fact, he comes as judge. He'll judge the living and the dead Uh, Everyone will, in fact, um, receive what they deserve for those who have sheltered themselves under our Lord's blood. Since he has paid the penalty for their sins, they will, in fact, share in Christ's glorious resurrection, the resurrection of their bodies, a new life and a remade heaven and earth for those, in fact, who have turned away from God who refuse to accept the word of the gospel, there will be judgment. Going from a big story into really about the smallest detail I can, because we're talking about this wonderful book, you have detailed endnotes 
and you've buried some real treasures there, I'm afraid that the average reader might miss it, even though they'll notice it takes up a lot of, a lot of pages. Um, do you really believe people are going to read these things? And if so, tell me about your strategy or maybe even the strategy to read them. Really good question, John. I worry about whether or not people will read them. And you're right, there are a lot of them. Um, they're in much smaller print. They take up about a third of the text in both the first and the second books. Here's the reason. Deep and thorough conviction grows out of familiarizing ourselves with a coherent web of detailed claims. Let me repeat that again. Deep and thorough conviction grows out of familiarizing ourselves with a coherent web of detailed claims. When we have a perspective developed in a way that shows how the whole perspective hangs together, it becomes more convincing. So the reason for my end notes is that in the text, I'm trying to give the basic story. But what I want the end notes to do is to put more of the details, more of the depth of what is happening throughout the book in a place where people can sample them, they can turn to them, they can read them, and they can find out aspects of what God has done throughout the whole story that otherwise they would not know and that I didn't want to burden the main text with because it would make it too difficult. Mm. Well, let me put you on the spot uh, and just pull out one of them from the Suffering Saints chapter. You, your end note, number nine, you go into some great details about what is meant when Jeremiah said, cursed be the day on which I was born. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. Talk to me about that. Cursed be the day I was born? He not only says, cursed be the day that I was born, he also curses the man who took news of his birth to his father. And he seems to get awfully, awfully close to blaming God, more or less saying, God, you forced me to become a prophet, and I won't have anything to do with it anymore. So what, in fact, that footnote is trying to do, that endnote is trying to do, is it's trying to help us understand how we should take those nearly blasphemous words of Jeremiah. Derek Kidner, one of the great commentators of the 20th century, says that what we find in chapter 20 of Jeremiah expresses a wild, cry of pain, that it's telling us just how awful things can get. And he says that our business isn't so much to analyze that passage, it's instead to understand that the curses are conveying a state of mind. They aren't just a prosaic plea. We find the same thing in the Psalms, John. We find that in the Psalms, often when the psalmists make some of their most poignant pleas, that we know that it can't be that what they express is exactly what's happening to them. 
the psalmists were not generally drowning as they were pleading with God to remove them from the waves that were cast over them. They knew, Psalm 121, that God didn't sleep. And yet in a couple of the Psalms, they just say to God, God, wake up. The point is, the depth of their emotional distress could only be expressed by means of words that were metaphorical and that went over the top. I want to just mention, Mark, though, there are those I have dealt with, and two come to mind. One just happened this morning, who literally refer to being at that place in life where they said, I was debating whether or not I should jump jump off the balcony. In this two-story hotel, a woman was describing to me an interaction with her child when the child was going to college and they were at such loggerheads and such mean words had been spoken to her. She's like, I literally was debating whether or not I should just jump off the second floor. And I think of another occasion where I actually was doing pastoral counseling um, with a couple who was uh, looking at the prospect of divorce. And I delivered a message um, to the woman uh, in terms of what I really felt like she needed to do. And she told me later she left that counseling time and said, my question was whether or not I should kill myself because what you're asking me to do was so ridiculously painful. It can really be people looking at death and they're going to pick up this work and they're going to say, okay, I'm suffering at that level. Should do I want to live? That's exactly what I want to have happen with this, John. The, those people need to realize that no matter how deep their suffering is, that scripture records instances of suffering that is at least as deep, and that that is a sign that God is with them and will walk with them through the worst of times. And I want to say, please do the work. The option can be killing yourself, it's worth getting into some footnotes. It's worth opening up that Bible and looking again, what is the story? Because if you walk away because you don't understand it, if you walk away because it's confusing and you don't understand what was happening 2,500 years ago, you're going to miss this passionate love story of a God who wants to reconcile his people to himself. And it's beautiful with an amazing ending. And if we miss it, we're going to get into a really dysfunctional life. And so I just love what you've done here, Mark, and uh, am looking forward to volume two coming out. And hopefully we can keep talking. Thank you, John. It's been Really a joy to work with you on these. And as I say that, Mark, isn't a lot of this, a lot of what we come up with sometimes is we may not get it yet, but keep talking. Yes. And yes. sometimes we know who to talk to, uh, to a loving Father in heaven who That's saved right. us through Jesus. That's right. The Bible's big story is one of hope for the believer. From the beginning, God wanted a relationship with his people. 
But rather than trusting God, Adam and Eve instead trusted the serpent and themselves, and thus fell into sickness and sin and death. Yet even in their rebellion, God still pursued his people and sent his son Jesus to live the life of obedience we never could, dying the death we deserved, so we might be saved through him. God raised Jesus from the dead in order for the resurrection to be the sign that God is going to make everything right for those who put their faith and trust in him. So no matter how deep our suffering is, if we have put our faith in Christ's work, then we can trust that God is always with us and will walk with us through the worst of times. Mark's conversation partner for this podcast is John Bash, a shepherd with Standing Stone Ministry and host of the radio show and podcast, Church Hurts And. Remember to put in the and when you look for it wherever you listen to podcasts or at churchhurtsand.org. If you found this content helpful, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, and your review will also help others find these discussions as well. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and John, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. Lord.